This is Sound Lives, a new music box podcast sharing insights and stories from people who dedicate their lives to new music. Brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Sound Lives. I'm Frank J. O'Terry, and you're listening to How She Danced from the Third String Quartet by Elena Ruer, performed by the Cypress String Quartet. Elena is my guest today. We'll talk about her nine string quartets, the surprising way that Bartok was a role model for her, her admiration for Georgia O'Keeffe, her obsession with reading, and her strict noon-to-five composing schedule, which has led to her composing 30 new pieces since the pandemic. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I know you're in the middle of a bunch of projects, which is kind of weird, because for the last almost three years, We've all been in this bizarre holding pattern. And now it seems like there's all this stuff happening again. Just to talk about the pandemic a little bit, for me, I stopped traveling. Travel just interrupts my flow so much that I think there are a lot of artists who just worked a lot. And I wrote like 30 pieces in two years or some kind of insane insane amount because I was working every day four or five hours a day and I had nothing else to do for me it was actually kind of eye-opening and now I'm back to traveling again and there's concerts which I'm going to either my own or other people's and it all gets in the way (laughs) I mean I love it it's wonderful to be back but it was interesting for me to just be at home and work so you really feel when you create music you need to be in your own space you can't Right, like on a napkin, like the next string quartet. (laughs) No, I have different ways of getting my work out, but I'm not really an introvert, but I'm, you know, if you take those little personality quizzes, I lose energy when I'm in social situations. You know what I mean? And so all of that stuff took away from my creative energy. But it's amazing that you were able to write so much music during this time. Did performances of all these pieces happen yet? Or are they all scheduled to happen? Some things, I wrote 25 pieces for my daughter for her 25th birthday. That counts as one, okay? okay? (laughs) And they're little short pieces and she's a sight reader and a pianist. She's a climate scientist, but those haven't been performed yet. Right. But they were for her and she's been playing them for fun. And a bunch of my friends who are piano teachers have been using them. They're like intermediate pieces. But I had a number of performances. I had my Cassandra in the Temple opera performed online with the 13. I did a work for Laura Downs and that was done as a online experience at a number of online things. And then as the pandemic phased in and out. I had different concerts. One of them, I went to a concert and I got COVID. (laughs) I was fine. I had a very mild case, but you know, I was like, oops, you know, that's what happens. I had little performances all through it, but now they're stacked up because there's all this stuff that's ready to go. That's great. And operas, that's like the biggest thing. And that was probably the area that was hardest hit during all of this. First off, you know, singing is allegedly a super spreader. People singing together, you know, like a chorus or solo voice or opera, a string quartet you can kind of play or a pianist you can play with your mask, but an opera you really can't do with the mask because it turns everything into un balo and mascara, you know? (laughs) Terrible, no, yeah. No, I just had a big opera premiere and that was put off for two years because of the pandemic. That was hard to take because you write an opera, you really want to see it and had to wait, but now it's done. 
Our show just ended. It was called Cosmic Cowboy. It was a sci-fi opera. It was a real extravaganza. We had almost a full house every night and we got standing ovations, which is nice. I think people are so happy also to be able to be back, to be able to hear live music. There's something about hearing live music together that is really irreplaceable. I think we discover that as wonderful as it is to have these concerts. And I've been just enjoying being able to virtually attend concerts all over the world that I otherwise might not be able to go to. But it's really not the same thing as being in a room. First of all, just the sound itself is so much better, especially with voices. I think our, we're really sensitive to voices, but the sound is so much better. And then the energy in the room and being there with the performers, it's a completely different experience. So operas have been a very important focus for you and they're central to the work you're doing now. But I find it interesting, even the works that are non-operatic, even the works that don't have sung texts, so many of your instrumental pieces have a narrative behind them somewhere. There's a story. There's something beyond the notes on you're nodding your head, which people are not going to be able to hear oh, on the podcast. Yes. Yeah. One piece that immediately came to my mind is this wonderful cello concerto of yours, Cloud Atlas, which was inspired by the David Mitchell novel, which I'm ashamed to say I still have not read. Oh, it's so good. I don't know if you like sci-fi, but it's, you know, he's an amazing writer. So it's high level sci-fi. So it's really good. I've been wanting to read it for years, but then I got scared of reading it because I read somewhere that the American and the British editions are different. There are chapters that are different in one version or the other. And then I'm like, okay, well, which version should I read? Uh, so, you know, that that's the kind of thing that makes my head explode. I just read the one that I had and I love it. <laughs> but I wonder, as somebody who hasn't read the book, I love the piece. Am I missing something when I hear the piece because I don't know the book? Absolutely not. I mean, I think the reference to Cloud Atlas is that in Cloud Atlas, it happens in these different time periods and the writing style changes from, you know, sort of old 18th, 19th century writing to 20th century writing to sort of tweeting and the style of the language changes according to what time period it's in. And that was the thing that I was interested in, is in writing a cello concerto that embraced a sense of stylistic complexity and the sense of past and future and different styles. That definitely ties into your musical interests, which really are the sort of you know, postmodern, everything's fair game, whether it's medieval music Renaissance music, romantic music, or contemporary music, it's all part of your language. That's true. And also world music, anything that I hear, pop music, anything that I like, I will incorporate or steal or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's listen to some of Cloud Atlas, performed by cellist Jennifer Klutzel with the Boston Modern Orchestra Project, conducted by Gil Rose on a recording of her music released by BMOP Sound.
so that's a piece that's clearly inspired by a work of literature, although maybe by its structure more than by its story. And then you have several wonderful pieces that span a 20-year period that are inspired by the paintings of Georgia O'Keeffe. So I wonder what makes her painting something that you keep returning to. There's two reasons that I'm interested in George O'Keefe. One is that I went to the Chicago Art Museum all the time as a kid because my grandma lived in Chicago and we would go to the art museum every year. And there was the sky above clouds. That's that huge, huge painting that hangs in there. And I just loved it from the time I was a little kid. So it was an obvious choice for me to respond to that. But the other thing is that she's a woman artist working at a time when it was a big deal to be a woman artist and get really famous. And I had read her biography and I was really interested in her as a human. So those two things that sort of led me to O'Keeffe. And then once I did Sky Above Clouds, I said, I need to make a set. And then I was looking at other O'Keeffe paintings. And there's another thing about O'Keeffe that I like is that she was doing representational art at a time when abstract art was sort of the thing. And she was very brave about it. And I like that about her. It actually gave me some courage. Her story gave me courage to do what I wanted to do, which I think is more representational and less abstract or more narrative and about expressing emotion. And that's why I do what I do. There's a quote O'Keefe said, which is, I can't say what I want. I can't do what I want. I'd be a fool if I didn't paint when I want and say what I want about painting. And I just always keep that in my heart. And I'm like, I'm going to do what I want no matter what. <laughs> you did each of these pieces 10 years separating each one. Next year will be the next 10-year mark. Is there a fourth one? <laughs> Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Maybe you're going to inspire me. Yay. <laughs> I should write a new O'Keefe piece. I'll think about it. I feel like the triptych is already recorded and maybe I'll put that in the back of my thinker. I just it. thought it was interesting that each one was separated by 10 years. I know you're involved in so many other different projects. You know, to write another orchestra piece right now that's like needs to be ready by next year as a tall order. Yeah, yeah. But I write every day, five hours a day. So I write a lot of music. So I might. That, that's fantastic. What time of the day? Noon to five. Unless wow. I'm teaching, in which case I go one to six because I have to teach until 1230. You know, those are my hours. And I know it because I don't schedule things as much as possible during those hours. Those are just my free hours. And, you know, sometimes I'm really composing all that time. Sometimes I'm just moving my forte mark up and down and stuff like that, but I'm doing my work five hours a day. Well, you know, the Gustave Flaubert story that one day he, in the beginning of the day, he added a comma to the, the sentence and at the end of the day, he got rid of the comma. That was his <laughs> work for the day. So moving <laughs> things around is actually very important. <laughs> I've heard my writer friends say this, and it goes back to your quote, which is that if you're having writer's block, you don't just avoid your work. You go in there and you edit and you check your typos and you go through and eventually your gears start working. You get back into it and you're doing it again. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. It's so true. Well, I have my marching orders. We have to be very good and end at a hard noon because I don't want to invade your composing time. <laughs> It's something that's very precious, especially if you're writing that fourth O'Keefe piece. I got to make sure. Right. I'll, try to, <laughs> I'll try to start in 45 minutes. <laughs> so, you know, once again, with the O'Keefe pieces, there I know the paintings. They're super famous paintings. I've seen them live. I've seen reproductions of them. But again, I wonder how important is it 
to know the paintings, to have seen the paintings, to appreciate the music? I think they're just jumping off points for me as an artist. I don't think it's important. I think the music exists by itself. There are relationships between the music, especially a sky above clouds, which has all these repeating images of clouds. And there's a little ostinato motive that's constantly there. It morphs and it changes, but it's always there. And to me, it's the clouds repeating. I was in graduate school when I wrote that piece and I was really enamored with Steve Reich and John Adams. And it's just a little bit minimal. I was really interested in that kind of thing. And so there was something about the O'Keefe that seemed like minimalism made as a visual object to me. Let's hear the opening of Sky Above Clouds, again performed by the Boston Modern Orchestra Project, conducted by Gil Rose. If it's not important for the listener to know those references. Oh, I don't think it is. Then why use those titles? Well, they're cool titles. And if you know them, it does enhance the experience. And they are inspirations to me. I mean, I have one string quartet. It's my fifth string quartet, which is called Canto. And that's based on the Ann Patchett novel, quite literally it's one of the only pieces i have that's really literally based on something extra musical in a way that matters and if you know that book you do experience the string quartet in a very different way than if you don't know the book so that's probably one piece that really does matter but most of them it's just a jumping off point it's interesting that you mentioned string quartet number five because i was heading right there what made me think of that is in the case of the string quartets you've now written eight of them which is like it's amazing you know I'm not fine. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. I got to catch up. The ninth one hasn't been recorded yet. It's not out there yet. No, it's going to be premiered uh, first weekend of November. That's incredible. But once again, you know, when you title a piece, say string quartet number seven, all that tells a listener is that you've already written six others, right? right? But you get the best of both worlds because most of these pieces also have additional titles beyond that formal title, and even the movements. Every particular movement has a title. And the one I I thought of immediately was Bel Canto, where you get so specific. You know, the accompanist dies, you know, cooking cocoa van, like these really, really specific things. So what in the music tells you those things? Well, in Bel Canto, it's complicated because The story is about an opera singer and she has certain repertoire. So I chose four pieces, three of which she actually sings in the book and one which I just included because I needed a little variety. 
I actually quote those pieces and I use them as jumping off points. So B, C, Darte, D, 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 right? That aria is one that she sings in the book and the opening of the piece starts Rebels in the Vent and it's doom, dee, 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 doom, dee. Anyway, I, I just take the first note and put it down an octave and I make this little ostinato out of it, right? So all of the pieces in that quartet refer back to the source material, but sometimes it's altered enough that you can't tell. Sometimes it's very, very, very close to the source material. The fact that she's an opera singer informs the music. But if someone were to hear this and say, oh, this is this chapter. This is the Coco Van chapter. Where's the Coco Van in the music? So Simon Thibault makes Coco Van, right? That's the name of that movement. The book has both light and dark moments. In this moment in the book, it's very light. And it's very sweet because he's doing this for other people. And it's a moment of relaxation. So I wanted to write something very sweet and very straightforward and short. No, I have to remember exactly my process, but I lean towards the more diatonic. This is not a very specific answer, but it's the truth, is that I have an emotion about that scene. And I sit in that emotion, and then I sit at the piano, and I improvise through that emotion. I try to make a sound out of the emotion that I'm feeling. And when I say, ah, yes, I captured it, then I write it down, and then I work on it. So it's all about turning emotion into sound. As far as I'm concerned, that's my job. That's what I do. Love how it. it's done, how it's done it remains a mystery to me. You know, and it's all it, stuff happening up here that you don't understand. And it's what keeps fueling the next piece. Cause if you'd figured it out, it's like, it's not as much fun, right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe I was having an oral hallucination with this, but you said that there were three pieces that she sang that wound up in the piece. And I was hearing, I was like, okay, this sounds really familiar. This sounds familiar. At one point, I thought I heard a snippet of Dvorak somewhere. Is that possible? Oh, the Rusalka. It's a whole movement, Song to the Moon. It's more than a transcription because I do add layers to it, but the tune itself is in pizzicato. You know, usually it's the singer who's singing the tune, but this is just in pizzicato. And then there's this layering of the story on top of that. It's called Carmen Studies Grammar. And to me, the Dvorak is the grammar. Ah, see if you can pick out Dvorak's music in this excerpt from Elena Ruer's Fifth String Quartet Bel Canto, performed by the Cypress String Quartet, released on Avi Records. language 
is the grammar of that music and that they're studying grammar and they're in a closet and they slowly fall in love. And so the, the stuff that's laid on top is really what's the important thing, but the grammar is underneath. And I'll tell you a funny story about that movement, which is if you know what I'm doing, you understand that I'm not just stealing Dvorak, right? But if you don't know the Dvorak, and you go to a concert and you listen to it, you might say, oh, I really like that one. And amazingly, not amazingly, it's not that surprising me. So many people have come up to me and said, oh, I really like that movement, you know? And I'm like, well, it's it's kind of not really me. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. It gets played on the radio all the time and stuff. And I'm like, well, you know, if they're going to choose one piece, they're going to choose Dvorak. Wow. But it's sort of a trick thing because you have a movement referencing Carmen and you expect to hear Bizet, but instead you hear Rusalka. Yeah. Now, so along those lines, just like with not knowing the book that it's about or not knowing the painting doesn't necessarily keep you from appreciating the piece, although knowing it can enhance it similarly knowing the music, the source music that you have then manipulated and turned into something else for your own ends aesthetically, I would say enhances the experience. But obviously there are a lot of people who've heard this piece who love it, who don't know Rusalka. Right, exactly. And it's fine. I write it not caring whether you know the references because it's the emotional transference of one thing to another. And that's the thing that I hope that the people who are listening get. And if they have the references, it enriches it. But if they don't, the emotional thing is hopefully contained in it. And I guess what threw me, because I do know Rusalka, but I was thinking Dvorak, I was like, which Dvorak string quartet is this from? And it wasn't. It took it and put it in a different frame, which was very interesting. I have had the experience of people who do know Rusalka when they hear that get a little annoyed because they feel like I'm stealing it. But it says in the program notes that it's based on all these pieces. An audience member is not necessarily going to get it. But ideally, the players who are playing the music are going to get it. And maybe because of that, you're going to get a richer performance of the work. And one thing that I was really struck by which I wanted to transition to it's the Cypress Quartet. I love that recording of three of your earlier quartets. I think it's one, one, three, and four. And they play those pieces like it's standard repertoire for them. They live that music. And it's the kind of thing that every composer or most composers, I would think, should dream for. This is like an ideal kind of performance situation where the players are putting their all into it and they're not just reading the notes, they're interpreting it and they're making it into their piece as well as your piece. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So I'm curious, you've had a, a long-term relationship with them. How did that begin? How did that happen? It's a very lucky thing for you and for listeners to be able to have that level of performance of these pieces. The Cypress Quartet changed my life in a beautiful, wonderful, great way. But the way it came about is a composer named Dan Coleman, who you might know, who is a good friend of mine. We both went to Juilliard, maybe not at the same time, but we became friends. I can't even remember how we became friends, but we became friends. And the Cypress Quartet had this thing, which is that they commissioned a new work to go with a program every year. And they were always looking for a composer and the way they did their 
selection was that they would get anonymous recordings, that they would solicit from their friends, right? It wasn't a call. It was a solicitation. So Dan Coleman recommended that they listen to one of my quartets. My third quartet was done by the Borromeos. And they had me send it in anonymously. And then they would listen to like stacks, you know, 20, 30 pieces. And if they all liked the same thing, then that would be on the list of people that they would commission, but they had to all like it. Wow. And so they chose me. I wrote my fourth quartet for them. And then I wrote my fifth quartet for them and my sixth quartet for them and, and then recordings and, you know, on and on. Incredible. And they went back to the, the pieces that they didn't commission and performed mm -hmm. them as well, which is my first and third. And they played them all over. They played them 30 times on regular part of their concert tours. They became my buddies. I used to call them my band, but they're all good friends of mine. They're no longer a quartet together. They lasted 20 years and they were like, well, we want to do other things. So now all of them are working with me in one way or another on their own projects. So it's, it's pretty cool. Wow. And the other thing that I loved about working with them was their commissioning program, which is they asked me to write my fourth quartet in response to Beethoven Opus 59, number three, and the Mozart Dissonant. And I was really interested in the idea of the relationship of these older repertoire to what I was doing. And that informed a lot of music that I've written that's not involved with them. But they're responsible for the bel canto one. They asked me, because I used to travel with four books all the time, because I'm, I'm a real weirdo reader. I read three, four books a week. Wow. And novels. I only read novels. And I read everything from the Pulitzer Prize winning literature to the ancient classics to to junk. I love sci-fi and mystery novels. I read everything. Love it. So yeah. they asked me to respond to literature. And then I chose Bel Canto because it had this musical thread through it that I thought would be fun to play with. I love that book. I love working with them. And the other thing about the Cypress Quartet is that because I had all these quartets that were written pretty well, they're some of my best work, and they were recorded so well, lots of other quartets found me. So now I have 10 string quartets that I can call up anytime and say, I want to play one of my pieces. That's so fantastic. It's the kind of thing that most composers dream of. And a rare thing. It happens with chamber groups where it happens even less. You were lucky also in this regard is with an orchestra. You were the first composer in residence for BMOP, the Boston Modern Orchestra Project, which is sort of a fascinating thing because normally you think of composers in residence and you think of, you know, orchestras that mostly do standard repertoire and they have a composer in residence who's going to be their kind of gateway to new music and they'll, you know, maybe commission a piece or have that person curate a series. But BMOP is all about new music. That's what they live for. So to be composer in residence for them, I imagine a very different kind of experience or was a very different kind of experience. Well, I've never been the composer in residence with an orchestra that was not a modern orchestra. <laughs> so I don't know how it's different, but it was really fabulous in many ways. That was a job that I just auditioned for. They had a call and I just auditioned and, and I got along really well with Gil Rose and he's still a good friend of mine. They're a great orchestra. Gil is a great conductor. He really knows how to pull it all together. So I got my pieces performed in an opera and it's two CDs and all this stuff, which is wonderful. I got to meet all the musicians in the, in the band, right? And now those musicians are playing my music all the time, which is great. And finally, I got to interview all the composers for five years. I did that job and I would do, be the MC at the opening of the program and I would interview all the composers who came through and have to, of course, do some research on them and get to 
of them. And then I would go to the rehearsals and really learn their piece inside and out. And I learned an enormous amount about kind of what was going on at that time in the music world, what the aesthetics were, what people were thinking about. And that was really fascinating and interesting. Wow, that's wonderful. I feel like that's what my life is to a great extent, talking to all these people, kind of getting inside their heads. It's it's very inspiring as a composer. So I totally, totally relate to that. There's a piece on that BMOP recording that I, I want to mention because it's one of my favorite pieces of yours, and I wanted to talk about it a little bit. It only uses the strings, string orchestra piece, Shimmer. It is such a gorgeous piece. And in the notes, you talk about how it's inspired by Vivaldi. And I, I love Vivaldi, you know, I get into these like arguments with people who say, oh, Vivaldi wrote the same piece you know, 500 times. He didn't. If you hear people who are really dedicated to playing his music, there is so much going on in there, especially when you hear period instrument groups do Vivaldi and they bring out some really incredible things in it. But I'll tell you, I love your piece, but I don't hear the Vivaldi in it. I hear lots of other things. So I'm curious about where the hidden cipher of Vivaldi in that piece and where that is. Well, uh, there's a story. Do you want to hear a story? Yes, totally. Right. I don't know if you know Scott Hughes' Metamorphose. And I was 27 years old or something. And that's how I met Dan Coleman. Dan had a piece commissioned by Metamorphose. And I don't know how he found me, but he found me and he said, we should get this girl to write us a piece. And so they were going to make a recording in a, for their premiere season. They said, will you write us a piece? You have six weeks, <laughs> you know, or two months or whatever it was. I had this really, really quick window of time. I was teaching full time and I was composing in every crack of time that I could to try to get it done. And so I was like, okay, yeah, I want to write a piece. And so I was like, well, these guys are all young and they're sort of rock and roll. And I was like, I'm going to do something kind of rock and roll for orchestra for them. And I kept writing these things that sounded just so cheesy, you know, like, remember that Beethoven's fifth version? It was so awful. The disco yeah, Beethoven, Walter version. Murphy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know, I, you know, this is not what I want to do. And I was really frustrated and I was under the gun and under the deadline. And I got really mad one day and it was cold. It was January in Boston. And I thought, I have to get out of the house and just walk around. And I said, I'm going to go to the shopping mall. Because that's where you can go in the winter and when there's ice all over. So I go to the shopping mall and it's a very upscale, fancy shopping mall, the Chestnut Hill Shopping Mall in Newton. And I'm just walking around, you know, I'm just there to get out of the house. I'm walking around and they're playing Vivaldi, Four Seasons of Spring they're playing. And I go, oh, Vivaldi, it's so beautiful, you know, and, and it's a string orchestra. And I'm like, oh, I wish I could write something like this. And then I was like, wouldn't... Vivaldi have been totally flipped out if he was just in a time machine and appeared in this shopping mall and heard his music being played perfectly coming from heaven, you know, like that whole sort of idea. And I said, wait a minute, I can write something like Vivaldi, you know, I can, I can sort of try to get into Vivaldi's head. And so I was very much interested in minimalism, as I said at the time, and I wanted to write a piece that was based on this idea I had been playing with, which is cyclical, basically serialism, but instead of being a 12-note series, it might be a five-note series. That's a sky of clouds. And in this case, I thought if I had two five-note series, I could almost turn on my computer and play you do, re, fa, sol, la, and re, fa, sol, la, do. They're the same thing. They're transposed. They're combinatorial. But anyway, they both fit into a major scale, but they're a combinatorial five-note set that fits into a, a seven-note set. Do you get my drift? Oh, I love it. That's great. Right. 
I can't remember the series in my head, it's gone. But then I said, okay, now that's the part of it that's Vivaldi is the diatonicism. The other part of it that's Vivaldi is that by taking this set, 10 note set and taking the lower notes, which is the Steve Reich idea of taking the lower notes and creating a resultant melody and the higher notes and creating another resultant melody. What I did was make counterpoint. And so the whole piece is full of canons and counterpoint and some of the ornamentation is a little Vivaldi-esque. You're not supposed to go, oh, Vivaldi, obviously, but there are Vivaldi aspects to it. So that's how that happened. Let's listen to the opening of Shimmer performed by the string section of the Boston Modern Orchestra Project conducted by Gil Rose. Interesting. So once again, really great writing for strings, all those string quartets, that string orchestra piece. But as far as I know, you are not a string player or never were a string player. Oh, I played the cello for one semester in college. Aha. You know, they had those meet the instrument classes. I did that, but I can barely hold a bow. I find it very awkward. I'm curious about, you know, where the background does kind of play out in your music. And I know that your parents or a mathematician and a literature professor. So I understand the love for reading and how books inspire stuff and the mathematical stuff. You know, here we are having a conversation wigging out about how to apply combinatoriality to diatonicism. So, you know, the math is there. You were a dancer early on. Obviously, the music has a flow, has a motion. But I'm wondering how those sort of formative things kind of shaped who you are and what you do. Well, you sort of mentioned a lot of them, but the, I have another story about string quartets, which okay. I've told a lot of people, but I'm going to tell you in case you don't know it. Do you know my Bartok story? No. So my dad had a hi-fi kit that he built in the 1950s, which was reel-to-reel tape recorder set. And he was a hi-fi kind of geek. He's a mathematician. And he got with the kit where he made it, he got all the Beethoven and Bartok string quartets on reel to reel. I think it was a Budapest quartet playing. And he used to listen to them and he got them mixed up. If he liked it, he would put it in one pile. And if he didn't like it, he'd put it in another. And so the, the Bartok and the Beethoven were all mixed up in a big pile. 
right? And different movements and different quartets. And it was just a big mess because he wasn't a neat freak. He would just put on whatever was on the top of the pile and then he'd put it over in one pile or the other and they'd put the next one on top. And I was allowed to go and sit in his study and listen to the music while he was doing his mathematical equations if I was quiet. So I'd go in with a coloring book and I'd just sit there and listen. And, and I did this for years and I would just quietly sit there and color. And then one day I was like, wow, I really like this. You know, and, and they all sounded like the same composer to me. Sometimes it was a good day and happy. And sometimes it's kind of a gnarly day, you know, but there was just this composer writing this music that was really cool. And one day I go to my dad, I say, daddy, what is this? And he says, Bella Bartok, because he's busy. And I go, oh, Bella, she's a girl. <laughs> and I thought that Bella Bartok was a girl composer who had written all the Bartok and Beethoven string quartets with one person. I love it. I love and it. And it wasn't until I was like 15 years old and taking piano lessons and playing Bartok that my teachers and I said, oh, I love Bartok. She's my favorite composer. And the teacher said, Bartok's a guy. And I had a huge argument with her. <laughs> Wow. Oh, and I told my parents that my piano teacher didn't know anything. And they were like, well, no, Bartok's a guy. And I was like, ah. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, that's amazing. So, you know, I've heard all these stories over the years from female composers about finding role models to encourage you to do stuff. This one takes the cake. That's absolutely the reason why I've written so many string quartets is that I have that, you know, I was steeped in it as a little kid. But to this day, I get the movements mixed up because I never knew what they were. I was just listening. I love it. That's incredible. And it also kind of plays into this whole sort of mix and match periods of history idea and this sort of postmodern aesthetic. Although one thing I have to say that I find so refreshing about your music is that it sort of exists beyond isms. We've kind of have this shorthand these days for better or worse, where we try to explain everybody away in a sentence, say, oh, this does that. I was listening to the recently your three preludes for piano. You know, there's some Debussy in there. There's some Scott Joplin in there. There's all this stuff in there. But it was inspired by Babbitt also in a way. And there's a 12-tone room behind it, but it doesn't sound like that at all. It sounds totally different. So you're able to use these different pieces of history and kind of do your own thing with them, which is really exciting. But of course, then it makes it harder to explain what you do. Yeah, yeah I guess, but whatever. Here's a bit of the second of Elena Ruer's three preludes for piano called A Solitary Figure at Water's Edge, performed by Sarah Bob and released by Albany Records. Thank you. 
if I wanted to be glib and come up with the sentences, I would say, this is music that uses all these materials and is not afraid to be beautiful. Well, thank you. Being beautiful is very important as far as I'm concerned. I take it very seriously. And emotive is important too. I have this little phrase, the surface is simple, the structure complex. It's something that I thought about a lot when I was in my 20s as I was trying to sort of form a sense of my style. And it was inspired by Mozart, really, in the sense that Mozart is so straight on the surface. But the more you dive in, the more you find, you know, oh, wow, four bar phrases and then there's a two bar phrase or all these really interesting things that makes Mozart very easy and approachable, but also deeply interesting and profound. And that was my role model. If I can do that, then I've succeeded. You know what I mean? So yeah, beauty is really important, but also accessibility. I'm sure that your average non-classical musician isn't going to necessarily like what I do, but I think most people who like classical music, even standard classical music, will find that the music that I write is something that they can approach. And that matters to me. That's important to me. To take this back to opera, to sort of come full circle with it, there it's really important because this music is serving a story. And so you can't get really bogged down in isms if what you're doing is trying to tell a story. And there have been amazing 12-tone operas, amazing minimalist operas. But in all those cases, they've taken those musical languages and have done really expressive things with it. I don't think, you know, most people watching Lulu are busy trying to pick out the tone rows. They're like engaged in the story that's going on, which is why it works. The first piece of yours I've ever heard, actually, didn't see, just heard from the recording, was Toussaint Before the Spirits. A really powerful work. I knew the story of Toussaint Louverture. I was lucky to know the story because in the 80s I taught ESL and I had students from Haiti and learned this whole story. It's an amazing story, this fight to create this independent country in the Caribbean, in the middle of the global slave trade, at a really bad time in history. And it's a story that most people just don't know. It doesn't get in a lot of the history books, which is why I think it's really important to tell that story and to spread that story. But what you've done with it is very unusual, which is why I'd love to see it staged. There's like a tiny snippet online. And I'd love to see all of it because you've taken this historical figure, but you've kind of created this mythology around him. It's this larger-than-life story. So I'm wondering how the whole thing works on stage. I'll give you a long answer. <laughs> okay, good. Because <laughs> that I was approached by Gil Rose to write an opera for Stephen Salters, who's the singer that's featured in Toussaint. And I knew I wanted to do two things or three things. I wanted to reference old opera. So I wanted a historical subject. I wanted a great hero for Stephen to play. I wanted to feature dancers because I have my dance background. So I wanted it to be sort of a dance opera, which has turned out to be a problem for staging because that's a problem. It's an issue. But anyway, I was thinking about Galileo. Luckily, I didn't choose Galileo because Philip Glass did Galileo and it premiered a couple of months before my show did. But I talked to Stephen and I, I was like, maybe we should do a great black hero. And we said, well, Toussaint is really interesting. And I had been reading Langston Hughes and I said a Langston Hughes cantata that Stephen was in that references Toussaint. And I said, you know, this is a great subject. This is deeply interesting, but I can't do it with a librettist who is not an expert on this subject. 
So I started reading all the books about Toussaint and the most famous book, which had won a national book award was All Souls Rising by Madison Smart Bell. So I wrote to Madison. I think I found his agent and I said, you know, I want to write an opera. And he wrote back and he says, no. <laughs> and I said, please, could you think about it? I think it could be kind of cool. And here's the singer that I'm going to write for. And I sent a recording of Stephen. He says, oh, this is really interesting. Maybe you should send me some of your music. So I sent him Shimmer and Stephen singing one of my songs called Stars. And he wrote back and he says, it sounds like a combination of Barber and Steve Reich. And I was like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. He says, I'll do it. <laughs> wow. But he says, but I want my wife, Elizabeth Spires, who's a poet to collaborate with me because he's a novelist and he doesn't write librettos so they wrote me this libretto and so all of the sort of meta story that happens is not really me it's Madison Smart Bell and Elizabeth Spires but we did raise Toussaint into an archetypal figure because that's part of Boudin religion is that there are these ancestor gods that are sort of our archetypes that become raised into gods so we turned Toussaint into this archetypal figure by the end of the show, which he is. If you grow up in Haiti, every high school student writes a paper about Toussaint, but it is also problematic. I mean, I wrote Toussaint in 2000 and 2001, right as I was writing it, September 11th happened. And I started thinking a lot about Toussaint as his story having to do with the slave trade and the slave trade being based really on economics and that the revolution, there was a parallel sort of there that I was really interested in and, and the parallels to modern life where we are investing blindly in companies that participate in slave labor even today, right? So I was thinking about all that stuff when I wrote it, but I was very aware of the fact that I'm white and I'm writing an opera about a Black story, and I felt pretty uncomfortable about it. And I think that one of the reasons, there's two reasons that this has not been staged ever again, and one is because it's a dance opera, and it's hard to do, and two is there's a little political discord over this issue of whether I should really be doing it or not. That's just the way it is. I think what's important is that these stories need to be told. All artists need to tell them so that audiences are aware of these stories. For me, it was like, here's this great Black hero. I'm writing for a Black singer who's a heroic type. He lives in the time of Mozart. I want to write about that time period. I really want to tell this story. If I don't tell the story because I'm white, what does that mean? You know, am I not telling a story because I'm white? That's sort of a racist thing too, right? So I just decided it was better to tell the story and let the chips fall where they may. And I was very proud of that. I am still very proud of that opera. I think I wrote some of my best work. Whether it gets produced again, your lips to God's ears, it would be great. Let's hear baritone Stephen Salters sing They Cannot Cut Down the Tree of Liberty from Elena Ruer's opera, Toussaint Before the Spirits, from the recording by Opera Unlimited, conducted by Gil Rose, released on Arsis. They cannot cut down the tree of liberty. They cannot cut down the tree of liberty. I say by the spirit that is in me, that tree will spring back from its roots. The tree will spring back from its roots. 
the other operas that are being done, Cassandra and the Temples, you know, once again, an old story, an ancient story, but updated to reference climate change, which is obviously a very current topic, something that affects all of us. I got the idea to do the Cassandra opera when I saw Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. It just made me think that Cassandra was this person who was predicting this terrible thing and no one would believe her. And I felt that Al Gore, although many of us believe Al Gore, that he had the same problem. And so that was where that came from. One final work I want to touch on, recent work that you created during the pandemic, which was very moving, and I don't want to you know, not mention it, is this Requiem that you did, which is a really powerful, moving piece that is much shorter than a lot of other requiems and has interpolated texts and is a very personal piece. So I wanted to talk about it and what it means in this era of the last three years where we've lost so many people. Yeah, my mother passed. She didn't have COVID, but she was on a ventilator and I had to make the decision to take her off the ventilator. And it was very difficult. I was very close to my mother. My mother was a really cool, wonderful, feminist, smart, environmentalist, very cool lady. One of my best friends, you know, I used to talk to her every day, practically. So when she passed, it really hurt me. And I wanted to write a piece for her, but I was feeling a little funny about it. And my husband, who's a doctor, said, you should write a requiem for her and all who passed in 2020. And so he sort of gave me permission to take that extra leap. And then I thought about my mother, who was an atheist, and I wanted to write a requiem. So I was looking for texts. And I just thought, you know, the standard requiem is the text that I want to use. I want it to be in English because that's her language. And I want it to have no religious references. So I just took a standard, really basic requiem text translated into English. And I changed all the religious words. So instead of saying, Lord have mercy, I just say, oh, have mercy, right? Stuff like that. Just simple, simple little changes so that it was a secular mass. So it was a secular mass for her. But it was important to me also that because I'm not a religious person, so whenever I hear music that's religious and I see that religious word, I go, oh, that's not me. I'm not included. You know, if you are religious, it doesn't mean you can't be included. Do you know what I mean? So it's an inclusive secular mass that's a requiem for my mother and all who passed. And the Oh Have Mercy movement is the second movement. To me, I think it's the most powerful because it's got this sense of rhythm that is the ventilator. And then finally it breaks and that's when she's gone. Let's hear the opening of the Oh Mercy movement from Elena Ruer's Requiem, performed by Emmanuel Music, conducted by Ryan Turner and featuring oboist Peggy Pearson, from the world premiere performance on November 7th, 
so glad I asked you about that. It's a funny place to end this conversation because I feel like that piece is very much of the pandemic moment. And now at this point, at the beginning of our conversation, we talked about how now at this transitional period where we're pivoting out of it somehow, and you said you're traveling again, all these live pieces are happening again. So is everything back to normal? Normal in the scare quotes, which people who are listening to this can't see my fingers. Pretty normal. I mean, I went to the BSO last night and I didn't wear a mask. I forgot it. And then I went, oh, I forgot my mask. And then nobody was wearing masks. So I was like, okay, maybe I shouldn't have done that, but I forgot to bring it. So it is pretty normal. I've been going to a lot of concerts and stuff. I'll tell you something on a happy note so that we end happy because it is almost 12 o'clock. I'm writing a new opera. It's called The Thrilling Adventures of Loveless and Babbage. And it's based on a graphic novel by Sidney Padua. And it is a response to the pandemic in the sense that it is a comic opera. It is very funny. The librettist is the fabulous Royce Vavrick. Oh, wow. Yeah. He's amazing. He's a lovely guy. And it's a lovely, funny libretto. It's very funny. And it's very light. There's hardly a dark moment in the whole show. And it's full of things that make people laugh because we did a reading of it and people were just giggling and stuff. And I thought, you know, it's time. It's time for us to lighten up because there's so much that we can feel dark about. But I needed to lighten up. I feel like my listeners need to lighten up too. Well, I can't wait to hear that and see it. It's going to be at MIT because it's Loveless and Babbage were the inventors of the first calculating machine. And so MIT has supported Guerrilla Opera to do the first production. And then it's going to get reproduced in a couple of other places. But the MIT premiere is the first weekend of February. So you got to wow. see it. Fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. I don't want to intrude onto your composing time. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. That concludes this episode of Sound Lives, but while Elena Ruer heads off to compose, let's listen to some of another one of her pieces. This is The Law of Floating Objects featuring multiple tracks of flutist Sarah Brady from a disc released by Albany Records. New Music Box is brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. This program is funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit newmusicusa.org to explore more stories and voices from our new music community.